Well, welcome to another Mofcast podcast. And today I've got an exceptional guest, a guy who you will instantly know when you've seen him on here or hear him. Um, and uh, in actual fact, he won two Rugby World Cups. Uh, he was, uh, oh, he's got a better win lot than a loss record against the All Blacks, and there aren't too many Australians that can say that, um, especially captains. Um, we'll talk about that kick in 2000. Uh, and, um, and he's also in the World Rugby and Rugby Australia Hall of Fame and, uh, and, and absolutely 100% deserved. So I, I could actually go on and on and on because when I looked at um, uh, Wikipedia, <laughs> there was so much that John Eels has done uh, in rugby and also post-rugby. So it's a big welcome, Eelsy, and thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, thanks, David. It's a it's a pleasure. Nice to have a chat. Yeah, it is. Um, so I'll, I'd like to start off with the two thousand kick, right? I was I was talking to a local cocky here the other day, and I said, oh, I've got John Eels coming on the podcast, and he said, you be sure to remind him that I still haven't forgiven him for that two thousand <laughs> kick at the Cakedown, and, and I well remember it because. It won the Bledisloe Cup for Australia, and there have been few and far between in, in recent years, obviously. What was going through your mind as you were lining up that kick? I mean, it was from the left-hand from the left-hand touchline from memory, uh, you know? Yeah, a bit, bit generous to say it was from the touchline. Well, uh, I think it was a little bit easier than that. But, uh, look, it's, uh, I suppose if you look at it, just re reflecting on your opening comments there, it was probably better that I have... 5 million New Zealanders who uh, won't forgive me than however many Australians who wouldn't forgive me if I had have, uh, had have missed it. Absolutely. But uh, look, uh, look we, we had so many tight um, matches with the All Blacks through that era. And so many were decided, you know, in the last minutes, um, you know, at the, you know, the latter stages of games. Um, and, and that was a moment I had the opportunity to, yeah, you know, to either make it or break it, and and I think what goes through your mind initially, it's um, yeah, you're very nervous. Like you, you think, oh, because well, I hadn't had a kick that day, and um, I didn't realise Sterling Mortlock was off the field, so I had to. Uh, I knew it was my kick once I realised he was off, and and then you you, you line it up, and you you've got the adrenaline rushing through. But I think as a kicker, you've got to make sure you relax and can get back into an optimal state of arousal like not not too much and not too little yeah and i had a set routine that i had developed over the years which allowed me to come back to that that state where i, I felt you know i could you know actually treat it for what it was a you know a kick with a, a set a close skill in, in the game of rugby and interestingly enough i when i was quite young i was at ballymore and i you know trying to learn as much as i could and i, I heard grant fox was in town and I was probably only 19, uh, 20 at this stage, um, had just made my way into the Queensland squad and Grant was conducting a goal-kicking uh, uh, clinic for uh, a series of coaches at a coaching conference that was on there. And so I, I sort of stood in at the back of that, that class at Ballymore on the Oval and, uh, and I really watched him and learned from him and, and then read his book subsequent to that. And, 
he was actually instrumental in, in helping me, like not specifically what he said, but just the process he went through in developing the technique, uh, if you like, the routine that I developed, um, which would, would have been different to his, but I think the important thing is not what your routine is, it's that you have a routine. Yeah. So in those moments where it's really tense, you can slip into that routine. Yeah, um, Ballymore is a, a favourite ground of mine because um, uh, I, I played for GPS Old Boys and, um, and that was when their ground was just across the river from Ballymore um, before they moved out to your old stamping ground at Ashgrove. Finsbury uh, Park, I think it was. Yeah, it? Finsbury Park. And, um, and I remember I, I used to do the goal kicking for the seconds because at Jeeps, David Clark was the first fullback. Um, you know, and I, and I, oh, I, my hair wasn't as as immaculate as Clarkie's. You know, <laughs> I was never going to make it. But no, I, I got I, on one season. I kicked my hundredth point at Ballymore, and um, that's something that'll re remain with me. Never at your level, though. But it's interesting, Eelsy. I mean, how many goal kicking second rowers of an international standard are there? Well, I've met a couple over the years, and I think, but I think you had to go back to the seventies, and I think was it um, Gordon Brown, uh, the the Scottish Scottish guy, yeah, uh -huh. and uh, uh, I think there was there was a South African or something. But look, there there haven't been many. No, and, uh, and certainly, I, look, I, I think it would be a surprise if we saw one again in the you know, yeah sometimes and. In many ways, it was an indictment on on how poor our backs were as kickers. You know, <laughs> and actually kick. Probably a product of the fact that we had the world's best kicker playing for Queensland and Michael Liner. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he was always kicking, and therefore no one else practiced. But I used to muck around a bit of training, and then when he wasn't there, no one else could kick. So John Connolly was the one who who told me to have a have a go at it. Yeah, so it's interesting. You mentioned before about if you'd missed that kick, then, you know, you'd have had five million Aussies uh, dislike you. Having told us today that to the extent to which Grant Fox helped mould your kicking style, I'm not so sure that there are going to be too many Kiwis that actually <laughs> think that's such a great thing. But Foxy, Foxy's a great guy. You know, I had a lot to do with him and I'm hoping to get him on the podcast at some stage. But his son's doing really well uh, at, um, uh, you know, in golf. You know, he's he's mm. really doing well. And I think your son plays cricket for Mossman from what I understand. Is that correct? Yeah, he does. And they, uh, they, they actually won the first grade premiership there for the first time in 83 years. Is that uh, right? Yeah, probably four or five weeks ago now. Um, I think they're still celebrating. So it, it was wonderful, actually, because we all went back to the... Because they won first and second grade, and, and that's the first time in history that they've done that. Right. Um, but uh, first time they've won the A-grade premiership in 83 years, and we're down at the local hotel, the Moho, as they call it, which, which sponsors the, the guys, and uh, we're there after the game, and, and who should rock in but Alan Border, who... Who played for Mossman. Yeah. Played for Mossman. And actually, they play on Allen Border Oval. Oval, yeah. Um, so they didn't they didn't play the final. That was on a neutral ground and it was a, a three-day game. Yeah. It was really wonderful to see how much the boys enjoyed it. And, and really, it's 
I think it's a great reminder of how important club sport is as a building block in any in any code, any sport, yeah. um, and the passion that people have. And in some ways, I think, and I was reflecting with Peter Forrest, who captain, who, who was the, the coach of the team, and he also played. He wasn't the captain; he was the coach, and he played for Australia, Peter, yeah. um, a number of years ago. But he's done an excellent job, and I, I, I reflected with him. I said, "Look." club rugby or cricket or whatever club sport is often one of the hardest levels to coach because you have a group of people who have such disparate um, motivations playing. Some are just happy. It's the highest level that they're they're ever going to play and they're happy. Some are just popping into the team and out of the team any given week. They've all essentially mostly are all amateur. Um, Some are on their way on a stepping stone to become representative. Some are maybe coming down that way of being representative. So you've got this really interesting collection of people and somehow you've got to find the common thread that, that will take them in and, and connect them with themselves as a team, um, as a club and as a community as well. And you know, Peter Forrest did a fantastic job doing that. And, and the joy the young guys had playing with guys like that. There's a, a name to watch as a guy by the name of Lockie Hearn was scored 140 odd in the in the final. Oh right. He's playing for New South Wales now, but you know, I would suggest he's definitely a player of the future. I'm sure we'll be involved in a few trans Tasman tussles in the <laughs> years. So yeah, yeah, yeah. really good to to watch. Well I played for Mossman up at Rawson Oval, which is oh, um, yeah. which is not far from uh, and and of course uh, our local watering hole at the time was the Buena Vista, which you yeah. Which you most likely know. No, uh, well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so always I've got fond, fond memories of playing um, with, with Mossman. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, is your son a, a bowler or a batsman? He's a bit of both. He was more picked as a bowler in this team. He sort of opened the bowling bat at number eight. So, but, you know, really uh, he, he enjoyed it. He, he, he enjoys doing both. Yeah, is he as tall as you, or no? He's not. He's uh, a bit stockier than I was at that age, but uh, he'd be about well, if I was six, seven, six, eight, he'd be probably about six, three, six, four around. Oh, maybe that's, okay. that's okay for a fast bowler, mate, because the ball's coming from a great height. Yeah, <laughs> you know. So, I mean, um, one of the other things that I'm intrigued by. Is the transition that you made from playing to business, and it's it's a transition that some some players make easily, um, and and other players struggle with because um, you know they especially these days when they're all wrapped up in being professional rugby players, and some players don't give much thought to life after rugby, uh, and. And I know there's a lot of work that's done by the players' associations and by the rugby unions to try and address that particular issue. But nevertheless, it can be difficult for some players. And, and I, I don't know if you played against him, but I um, did a podcast with a guy called David Corkery. He played for Ireland. Uh, he was a back rower with Ireland. And he got himself into a very, very dark place. He had to finish playing when he was 27 because of um, two Achilles problems. And he got into a deep depression. And, and, and we talked about this and, uh, and it's when the phone stops ringing, you know, all of a sudden you're in this, 
very, very rarefied atmosphere. Injury, boom, it's all gone. Yeah. How, how, how did you manage that transition? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a good question. Um, there's probably a few components to it. The, the, number one, I think you need to check yourself as to where you get your sense of self-worth from. Um, and if you get your sense of self-worth from the game or from people you don't know coming up and saying well played or great tackle or great kick or whatever, then you're probably in, in, in a bit of trouble in, in making that transition. Whereas I think if you, if you get your sense of self-worth from how hard you're working to achieve something from, you know, your, your friends and your family, uh, from, um, yeah, just, yeah, not, not necessarily the game, but from your achievements and working hard, well, then I think that puts you in a better position. And I actually, I got some really good advice very early in my rugby career. And I, rugby was amateur for half my career. And I think that really helped me prepare for life afterwards. I always wanted to study. I studied and then I worked for the first half of my career and I always found I kept doing something while I was um, while I was playing as well. But in 1992, in my second year playing for the Wallabies, I was on a trip to Ireland and uh, Wales and I jumped in a cab going somewhere and the, the Irish cabbie in Dublin, uh, he, he recognised me. <clears throat> he started talking about the rugby and... And then at the end of the conversation, you know, we talked the whole time. At the end of the conversation said, look, John, just one thing, you're playing sport now, you're going to be doing other things in life. He said, just always, if I can give you one bit of advice, it's to love love what you do, not what you did. And I've never forgotten that because, because it's, it's wonderful advice because it, it talks about living in the present for the future rather than living, living in the past. And, um, and so for me, it was really around that. And another great mate of mine, Chris White, he, um, he used to say, when you retire, you need to think about you retire to something, not from something. And so I think both those bits of advice is about looking to the future. And I think rugby or sport, any sport, any day can be your last playing sport. Yeah. And it can be all taken from you, and you don't necessarily, you won't necessarily control that that choice. No matter how hard you work, elements of luck come into it. So I think it's being prepared and always thinking, okay. And I hadn't always had in the back of my mind, if it all ended today, this is what I would, I would do tomorrow. And that thing I would do tomorrow changed many times. Yeah, sure. So I always had in mind that there was a next step if it all ended. That's a brilliant piece of advice, Elsie. Um, in actual fact, um, it's most likely a good bit of advice for me, to be perfectly <laughs> honest with you. I don't tend to live in the past. I mean, I do. We might get onto it a little bit, you know, in terms of the way the game's being played at the moment. But you know, not not in a in a in a way in which uh, you know I think is overly critical. But you know, I do have some points of view. In, in respect of that, but that I think is a very, very good bit of advice and anybody watching this, especially any players, current players that are watching this. So did you, you know, you're obviously, right, besides being a great rugby player, you're obviously got, you're a highly intelligent guy who's thought a lot about a lot of things. So what did you end up doing when you, when you and what are you doing now also? I'd, I'd be very interested to know. Yeah, look, I, I, um, I studied 
and I did a Bachelor of Arts degree. I, when, when I finished school, I knew I wanted to study and did well at school, but I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I, I suppose one of the things I really am so pleased as I look back over my life, I've, I've, I haven't followed things because they've been the, you know, the natural or the normal way of doing things necessarily. I follow things because I've loved them or have been curious about them. And while I could have studied a lot of different things, I, I, I was curious about psychology and I, I studied, studied that. And then rugby sort of took over and I thought, well, here's an opportunity. I'm just gonna go headlong into this as you know, just really um, experience this and then exhaust my interest in playing the game, which I, I felt I did. And then uh, when I left playing rugby, I joined BT Financial Group and I just wanted to get an insight into bigger business. And, um, and then I set up my own business, which was a consulting business with a partner. He was based in Melbourne, I was based in Sydney, and we built that up. And it was anything around anything around people in organisations, so anything around the HR function or leadership or culture. And we, we built that up and then sold that business. And then from then on, I've pretty much taken a role where I've, I've stepped into a few non-exec director roles and uh -huh. had the, taken the opportunity to invest in a few different businesses and take, I try to take an active role where I invest in something. So at the moment I'm on the board of Flight Centre, Travel Group, Magellan Financial Group, and a group called Trajan Group Holdings, which is in the analytical and life sciences space. Um, I'm the chair of that latter business of Trajan and we floated the business last year at an IPO. And um, so we've been listed for coming up to a year now, coming up to 12 months. and. And then there's a few uh, private businesses which I've invested in and some for, you know, over, I tend to be a long-term holder if, it, you know, if, if yeah. I can. Um, so one of the businesses I've been investing for, you know, 12, 13 or 14 years now. So it's in the, it's in the agricultural sector. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Very, very interesting. Um, and, uh, and then, yeah, so, so really just try to take an active involvement in, in different things like that. So you've got a very full life. Um, and I think that's one of the secrets of um, never having been in your position as a player, but I managed to have a reasonable career in rugby administration. And mm. um, I, when I finished with Wales, I, I pretty much had enough, you know, but within 12 months, I sort of, wondered what I'd done by leaving when I was so young, you know, mm. uh, and in that, so, it, uh, you know, I started my own consultancy and had quite a bit of success with that. That was just my own personal thing. Um, and, um, and now I'm doing this, you know, I mean, I, I regard this as when I was refereeing in Sydney, I used to, it was all, I used to regard refereeing as my relaxation. That might sound strange, but for 80 minutes plus half time, you couldn't yes. think about anything else. Yes. You know, you are always, well, you, you know, you're concentrating 100%, you, you know, trying not to get anything wrong. And so I always found, as I said, that that, that, that was my relaxation. Um, and, and um, you know, it's, it's important, I think, for everybody to, to try and you know have as much fun as they can with with what they're doing um but i you know 
I used to enjoy it because I, I would referee Wallabies. You can always remember the best game of rugby I ever refereed was at TG Milner. And I was refereeing Randwick and Eastwood. And Ian Williams was playing for um, Eastwood and Campo was for Randwick. And they just ran the ball. I mean, it was just fantastic. Yeah. And it's the same with podcasts. I get an opportunity to talk to guys like yourself, find out a bit more about you, let people that might listen to this do the same. Uh, and so, you know, it, 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 it falls into the category that I'd never thought about until you mentioned it, which is love what you do, not what you did. Yeah. I think. It's, I mean, that's brilliant. It's blown me away, actually. No, oh, look, it was, it was such great advice. And so, as I said, that was back in 1992. So. Yes. 30 years ago, and I, I still remember it, and still, you know, it's probably one of the maxims I, I would live by. But um, yeah, I think it's uh, I, th I think it's really important in life to to follow your curiosity, and then and then you might dive deep into something for a while, and and uh, and then you might find you don't like it, and that's that's a good thing to find out you don't like something because you won't go back there. <laughs> yeah. but, yeah. I've, I've, my life's been very full, very interesting, and I'm very fortunate to have a, you know, to have grown up in a in a large, loving family, and to, you know, to have um, you know a great family now, and you know, you've got those things you fall back on all the time. Yes, I mean, um, and of course, I, I I would like to drag you back now a little bit to rugby matters. Mm -hmm. Um, I know you were on the board of um, Australian rugby for a while, and I think it's really good that um, ex-players actually see the other side of things from being on a board, you know, about a lot of the difficulties that, that the board members and also the executive deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and, 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 I've, and I've been on several of those, obviously, um, starting with New South Wales. I can remember when I went to New South Wales, you know, we were, we were, there was this, there was this sort of hate relationship between New South Wales and Queensland, which, um, well, when Doyley was the chief executive of, um, uh, of Queensland, we got on like a house on fire, you know, we, we really did some good stuff together, you know, and I could never quite understand why the, and it was most likely because New South Wales didn't ever believe that Queensland should have ever won anything, but of course yeah. they did, you know. <laughs> Um, but I mean, it, I mean, so I think that is that is very valuable um, to to have somebody like yourself sit on the other side of the table. Um, but uh, in respect of the rugby, I mean, there's been a lot of rubbish, to be perfectly honest with you, spoken about by New Zealand Rugby Union in recent years. You know, they, I'm not going to ask you to get into the debate about whether they're right or they're wrong. Uh, I've said enough about what, how wrong I think they are over here. And it's interesting because for the first time in a while, we've had a couple of Australian sides beat New Zealand sides on the weekend. Mm. And, and I wanted to know what you thought about that and whether you think that they can maintain that momentum because I think it would be fantastic not only for Australian rugby but for New Zealand rugby if they were not to win everything all the time uh, and, and also for world rugby. Yeah, well, complacency is an issue. And like, I think of all teams that, that avoid complacency, you know, compared to relative to the success they've had, the All Blacks have been outstanding at, um, 
avoiding complacency and you'd have to put sides like the Crusaders in similar similar bracket to that with all the success they've had over a long period of time. But it, it, there is no question that, that for the game in Australia and New Zealand, in our corner of the world, that it's better if it's a competition. And you look at how how alive the game was in Australia when the Wallabies were successful and winning World Cups. And, and, and you could go through and actually never win another World Cup as long as you won the Bledisloe Cup every few years. Um, that would just breathe so much life and hope into the game. But it has been such a long time. But we've come close. We've, we've been competitive. We try, but, you know, it, it just, you know, we've lost the big moments, even not the big minutes of games, We've lost the big moments and it'll just be an instant where the All Blacks can just turn it on or we just can't hold on for that that little bit longer. So there's been a, a fair bit of pain uh, over the last few years. So, yes, last weekend, so good to see very strong performances from Australian teams. And, you know, the Waratahs are a really good example. Um, people can get, you know, I think New South Wales supporters, Waratah supporters, judge very quickly and they've had a bit of disappointment and some great success, particularly in 2014 when they won the championship. But uh, that last year they went through a season and didn't win a game. This year they've gone back to a coach who came up through the Sydney club system. Yeah, through um, through Gordon. Yeah. yeah, through Gordon and Warringah he coached. He had premiership with both, <clears throat> both clubs, I think. And um, and he's just brought them back to basics. So we're not going to change overnight. They've got essentially a very similar roster to what they had last year. Yeah. And now they've won six or seven matches yeah, this year. And they've beaten the Crusaders last weekend. And yeah, that's a phenomenal effort. And and people were talking about it. I was at a function that night and and people were coming up who wouldn't usually comment on rugby. They said, Oh, the Waratahs beat the Crusaders. And yeah. Yeah, so it was great to see. And so, I mean, I grew up as a Queenslander and you spoke about the hatred between Queensland and New South Wales and it was like that on a Saturday. But I think when we came together as an Australian team, that all just disappeared. Yeah. It wasn't there. But being retired now, you, you can look at the game through a much bigger window and you're right, having that experience on the board and recognising, I always knew it was hard, administratively but yeah. you don't realize you can never realize the complexity of some of the issues you face and people will come up with very simplistic solutions but the simplistic solutions do not work no. like say just focus everything on club rugby and everything will follow it doesn't work like that no. and equally it doesn't work like work if you just focus everything on the wallabies you need both sides of the equation. I was on the board of the Australian Sports Commission and, you know, for a number of years soon after I retired from rugby and, and there was this constant battle between participation and elite. And that's a battle that sports like rugby face. Um, uh, you know, some sports don't face it as much when they're, they're just running the head body of the game and not necessarily responsible for all the grassroots and it's it's a challenge to get right. It's it's not as much of a challenge in New Zealand because you've got. Well, I got to say, I got to say, John, that um, basketball has now overtaken rugby in participation numbers in this country. And you know, if you'd said that to me a few years ago, I would have thought you're a bit crazy. But 
there are a lot of issues surrounding rugby at the moment, and um, and I notice um, uh, another one of the England players, uh, ex England internationals, has come out and um, said that rugby might be dead in forty or fifty years unless there are certain changes made. Now I, I don't agree with that, um, but there are some issues that rugby is facing at the moment, and obviously this whole head injuries uh, one is is front and center because. You know, that's that's the shop window to the world game is a professional game. And my, my concern at the moment is that, you know, not that they're not doing anything because they are. You know, they've got some really strong protocols, much stronger than when you were playing and when I was administering. But what really worries me is that there are still a lot of people being treated for head knocks in a game of rugby, you mm-hmm. know, and, and they go to the head bin. Uh, and then they get assessed and they're either assessed as able to come back on, most of them don't. So my, my point is what, what, what's happening, even with all this focus on, on these head injuries, why are we still getting some of those you know, head injuries which are causing players today? I mean, I don't, they're, most like, they're most likely not as frequent or as or or as um, hard hitting perhaps as in the past, but they're still occurring. Yeah, I think rugby's been ahead of the game with these things, ahead of other contact sports. You know, from an early stage. And I'll give you an example. When I played, I, I was knocked out twice. One was in um, was actually at a recovery session coming down a water slide. Oh, sure. um, <laughs> that was one of the one of the times and. The second time was in a game of sevens that I was playing. So that's pro- probably a message not to play sevens or go down water slides. But, but you know, on both those occasions, we had return to play protocols in Queensland rugby and Australian rugby. So I wasn't allowed to play. I got knocked out on a water slide on a Monday night. I wasn't allowed to play on that Saturday. Right. I'd been knocked out. And in the return to play protocols, that was in 1994. And it was the same after sevens. It was a number of weeks I was out. 1994 and 1995. Now, there's probably been times and countries that have, have slipped on these standards more than others. But look, it's a, it's a live issue. Uh, being a contact sport, you're never going to eliminate um, no. uh, you know, accidental contact. I think they're right in going very hard towards deliberate contact. I think they are sometimes, some of the things that I've seen people get sent off for or 10 minutes for or 20 minutes for, depending on the thing, have been, you know, they've been quite absurd. It's been a brush rather than anything else. Yeah. It's certainly nothing intended. But it is it is something we have to be very mindful of. And I think there's, yeah, you could go into other rules of the game and, you know, the, you know, the number of people on the field, the contact, the, the, you know, the risks associated with it. How do you get the balance between preserving, you know, the integrity of rugby as a game? And I think... Yeah. I remember speaking to Rod McQueen about this on many occasions. He often often spoke about the integrity of, of rugby. The thing that differentiates it from rugby league is the, the contest for possession. Yes. In rugby, there's a contest for possession at every moment, whether it's a scrum, a line-out, a ruck, a maul, a tackle. And in rugby league, the only contest for possession is if a ball is kicked in the air or it's a one-on-one yeah. uh, contest for a strip. And yeah, that's fine, but the integrity and that preserving the contest for the integrity of the contest for possession preserves 
guys like me being able to participate in the lineout because it gives you an advantage because you're taller, you can jump higher in the lineout. Um, guys that are short and stocky that can play in the front row of the scrum. Mm. If you take away the integrity of the contest for the scrum or the lineout, then you're probably going to take away a certain class of athlete to play the game and therefore take away some of the essence of the game. But you've got to do this. You can't do that in a vacuum. You've got to do that with this consideration around what are the safety issues yeah. and protocols that you want to put in around this as well. I mean, I got into trouble once with uh, Phil Gould for calling um, rugby league five tackle kick, but I, I was defending his view that rugby had become like basketball on grass. This was just when super rugby started, you know, when it was all defences hadn't caught up yet with all of the attack that was yeah. going on at the time. I do believe, though, that the game has become more of a collision sport than a contact sport of recent years, yeah. um, and that increasingly um, you're a big guy, you know, you'd always get a game, doesn't matter where, where it evolves to, but, but you know, the backs are now 100 kilos, you know, and, and fast, um, and they spend a lot of time in the gym. Um, and, and, you know, my, my, so my concern is that with that, with that collision element, and I'm 100% with you, the game, whatever happens to it, there's got to still be an authentic game of rugby because... Mm. And it is a game for all shapes and sizes. You know, that's what we always... I mean, you go to rugby league, you know, and they're all the same shape and size, except for a couple of taller guys might get a game. But, you know, that, that is, those are things worth, I think, preserving for rugby. Um, but but I, I would like to see the game. And, it's start, and I think it's this evolutionary thing, it is starting to open up a bit. We saw that in, uh, with Ireland and especially the French. Mm. Um, you know, on, on the recent uh, Northern Hemisphere tour. Um, and I'm, I'm very much in favour of teams playing to their style. I call it McDonald's rugby, John, at the moment, where everybody wants to play the game the same way. It's like going to McDonald's and ordering, ordering a Big Mac, right? Yeah. Whereas I would like to see the French play the French way, the Welsh especially having been there. You know, they've still got innate skills in their young kids, but it gets coached out of them. And of course, you know, the running rugby of Australia, you know, that, that was when, that was when you couldn't get a ticket to see the games when you guys were playing when it was that. And I know things evolve, but, but I, I do believe that there's a little room for developing your own style of play, even in the professional era. Yeah. I mean, there, there has to be. And you know, for, for the game to change, it's going to require some people to be brave in how they play the game and do things differently. And look, that, that has been one of the great things about the All Blacks is that they've led and they've won through playing great rugby. They haven't played negative rugby. Uh, so they've played and they've maintained that willingness and desire to attack. And attack doesn't mean you don't kick because the All Blacks would kick as much as anyone in some respects, but they... They kick with a, a different purpose. So I think they have been very good leaders of the game on the, on the field. But I think, you know, you, the comment from whoever it was that said, you know, rugby won't be a game in 40 years. I think it was Ben K. Ben K. Um, okay. yeah. Well, like, I think it may not be in the form it is today. And, 
And I, I think that would be a good thing because in 40 years, you would hope it's a bit of a different game. Yes. Somehow preserving the integrity. And it's going to take some brave administrators to say, we need to change before we are compelled to change um, through through other in, environments and other reasons. So yeah, what does that mean? Does it mean you end up taking two players out of the scrum? Does it, does it mean you end up you know, increasing, I mean, it's, it's hard to increase size of fields when you're constrained by the large international fields, but yeah. does, does it mean you uh, restrict people from doing certain things on the field? Oh, look, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not as much of a student of the game as you need to be to come up with these ideas, but we need creative minds to, to turn their mind to how can rugby be a game that preserves the integrity for the contest for possession, but still be a growing uh, spectator sport. Um, yes, which is supported by parents. And, yeah. of course, that's, you know, that's a very big thing, um, becoming even bigger, mums and dads. You know, mm. they, they're going to want to know that this is a game that's going to be safe for their kids to play. And I think it, I think it will get back to that. Um, I will... Um, after we finish, I'll, I'll just get. Um, I'll send you something that I've done, and it's currently being considered by World Rugby. And that is, I've, I've along with a few people, a few other people, like guys like Robbie Deans and a few guys and referees, ex-referees, ex-administrators. We've come up with a game which is Elevens Rugby, right. and it is it, it it sits right in between sevens and fifteens. It's. Um, Four quarters of 11 minutes, which is 44 minutes. And we believe the ball in play time will be at least 40 of those 44 minutes. Uh, it's based around simplicity, safety and fun. Um, and I'd be very interested to get your thoughts on it, you know, because um, I, I, it's not something that I want to run. You know, I've, I've, I've said to, I've said to um, Billy Beaumont, Sir Billy Beaumont, I've said, look, here's here's something which is like a turnkey option for you if you want to do it, you know. All we would like to do, we'd like to run, for example, one of the things we're looking at at the moment is running an inter-varsity inter 11s competition, mm. a, a global varsity competition playing 11s because you can, you know, and, and it is actually, unlike 7s, um, it, is, it is more of a true game of rugby because it's yeah. going to have to have those short, fat guys and the tall guys and, and the backs because the backs are pretty useless as you forwards always tell us um we're actually it's going to be a six five split six forwards five backs um and it's not supposed to it's not designed to replace uh, 15s at yeah. all but it is designed to say okay look just like cricket has got different formats of the game mm. this is another format of the game which, which people can consider playing. If they want to play it, yeah, they can. But it, yeah. needs, it needs to get World Rugby to endorse it in, in order for people to be able to play it or for governing bodies to say, okay, this has been endorsed by World Rugby, so then we can have it as part of our approach going forward. Yeah. Look, I, I'd be really interested to see that because I think we do need to think creatively and I know I played sevens I played tens I played fifteens and tens was a great really interesting fun form of the game to play and it was hard you're running the ball was in play a lot more but I, I think we've got to accept that 
particularly when you're looking at this balance between participation and elite. The elite form of the game, and, and in cricket, that's test cricket. Yep. No one else plays test cricket in, in that form. I mean, yes, it's Sheffield Shield cricket, will be, which will be four days, but it's at a very elite level. And, and obviously the, the different formats of that around the, the world, Sheffield Shield being the Australian version. But, but the more accepted level, not, not the more accepted, but the more participation form of cricket is, is you know, one day cricket. Yeah. So 50 overs, 40 overs, 30 overs, depending on the grade you play. And now, obviously, 2020 is a bit different. But to get all, all those rugby skills in an environment where there's less, uh, less you know, uh, collision, uh, still yep. contact, but less collision is a good thing. And, and something I could see in 20, 30, 40 years where those forms of the game on the same size pitch, you know, involved with the same infrastructure of clubs, become the dominant form of participation but with while you've still got the elite level um, fielding players from that taking them to that elite level and look it may come to that i don't know if it'll come to that you know but we've got to be creative and brave in the way we think about it when i was refereeing i used to referee a lot of the waratah shield in new south wales which involved all the schools, including state schools, rugby league playing schools. And you always knew when you were refereeing a state school because the uh, halfback used to say, which side do you want me to put it in? Sir? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, well, the loose head side would be good. <laughs> but, um, the, uh, but, but I think something like 11s, for example, would be a good way into the state schools. And we, we, in Australia, and we're not talking about we, I'm talking about in Australia, the game, the game is under, under pressure from a whole lot of areas, but none the least of which is the private schools, which is where most of the rugby players come from, other than the Pacific Islanders, obviously, mm -hmm. that, that, you know, that, that pick up the game. Um, and having been through that that system myself, I, my son went to Shaw, but you know, even now in Shaw, they've got way fewer number of rugby teams, you know, than they yes. used to have. They've got Australian rules being played there, you know. They, I don't think they've got rugby league, but you know, um, I think there's some some argument for actually saying how do we get into rugby league schools? Because not all rugby league players in in schools actually. Um, who, are, who are playing there actually want, perhaps want to play rugby league. They might want to try this other yeah. form of the game. Yeah, look, I think it's uh, you know, something we have to have to consider because, you know, those regular nurseries that we always um, won't say took for granted because, you know, there's been limited resources and they've always been, um, you know, valued. Uh, yeah, they're, they're being challenged more now than ever. And I think in Australia, we, we, we confront more challenge. Like you talk about basketball in New Zealand. Well, we've got basketball in Australia and we've got, if you're the best Aussie rules player in the world, or if you're the best rugby league player in the world, you're playing in Australia. Yep. And so you've got those two behemoth competitions that you're also up against. Now, rugby has its place and we love the fact it's international, but... That's not going to appeal to everyone. Yeah. Right. And, and then we've got the challenge that it's great being international. We're in a global market, but then you've got global market forces that are at play too. Yeah. So 
you might be able to get paid twice or three times as much to play half as many games in Japan yes. as you would playing in Australia. So that, that is going to be attractive for some people, not all people, but some people. And New Zealand is seeing this. They're lo- probably losing better players at a younger age. Yep. Um, it's just you've got a better nursery to reinvigorate those ranks than, than what we have at the moment. Yeah, although I I um, I've made a prediction about the next World Cup in in um, I don't know how the draw works out, but I've I've suggested that um, uh, that that the um, uh, the final will be played by France and one other. Uh, it's in France, and I didn't have the All Blacks as being one of the one others. I thought the one others would come from. Um, from Ireland, South Africa, or Australia, uh, and I think uh, you guys got a good coach at the moment in Dave yeah. Rennie. But I could never understand why New South Wales, for example, went went for Queensland's different because you know the coach up there has been on both sides of the the, the, the dish, ditch for a while. But why they would go to a New Zealand coach instead of saying who was unproven at that level, I'm not, you know, being overly critical, but it's true. Um, who was unproven at that level. Why, why invest in somebody like that when you should be investing in somebody of your own homegrown, like, you know, what's the guy's name from Gordon? Darren Coleman. Yeah. I mean, you know, and they'd almost lost him, didn't they? Because he went, he went, wasn't he going to go to America or something? He did. He coached the, Guillotinis or uh, I yeah. think in the major league rugby or whatever it's called. Yes. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, which is great. And then, I mean, that's been great. I've got a, a really close friend's son and, uh, who's playing in, in the New York team at the moment and uh, yes. loving it. I've actually, um, uh, I've actually been doing quite a lot of uh, podcasts with people in America trying to understand, you know, What's happening in America with the Giltinis? That was named after a drink. Um, the Giltinis, owned owned by an Australian yes. with the same name as a famous cricketer. <laughs> yes, yes, no, no story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and uh, some other guys up there. Spoken to the guys at um, uh, one of the universities about whether they'd be keen to. And it was Notre Dame, and I noticed that you actually. Do some stuff with Notre Dame from time to time. Is that right? Uh, the Australian, the, the Australian version. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> um, listen, I could actually talk to you for forever and a day, John. It's, but we have to finish sometime. Um, before I do, I'd like all the people watching this just to press the like button or the subscribe button or whatever you do. <laughs> you know, because um, this is one of. Uh, the best interviews I think that I've done, well, most likely the best I've done and certainly one, the best that I'll ever do. And uh, John has given us a lot to think about. And I'd like to thank you, mate, for, for coming on and making the time. And I wish you all the very best in the future. Thanks, David. It's a pleasure. All the best. All the best, mate. Okay, I'll just stop there.